Well, the songs we've sung this morning have prepared us well for this morning's sermon text. You see, God's grace is free. And so we sang, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But God's grace has a double cure, we sang. It saves from wrath and it makes us pure. The reformers had a great Latin phrase for that. They called it the duplex gratia, the double grace. Remove his wrath, making us pure. Or as Charles Wesley taught us in that hymn we just sang, our imprisoned spirit was bound in sin in a dungeon of death and God's eye came in and pierced that dungeon's darkness with light. And so we can, we can sing now. I woke the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love is freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, but also it, it leads to following him. And James, too, is relentless in making the case that God's gift of grace, which is a gift, includes fruit, not just forgiveness. God's grace doesn't require transformation or cleaning up before that grace can be received, but that grace, having been freely received, has transformative power, and it inevitably transforms, according to James. James is concerned about those who have made confession but don't have conduct or have belief, they think, without behavior. He's concerned about some who make a profession but have no possession of the real thing. I've thought from time to time that if God hadn't made me a pastor, I might have enjoyed being an attorney in a different life. There's some similarities between pastoring and being an attorney. Uh, hold your jokes, I'm not actually leading to a joke, I'm serious, there's some similarities. It does sound like a setup to a bad joke. But you think of you know, the research involved in logic and rhetoric and making an argument and, and trying to persuade and seeking the truth. Both pastors and the best attorneys have those in common. We should say the best pastors too for that matter. Not all pastors uh, do those things as well. But I suspect James might have made a good attorney had the Lord not called him to pastor. As I said, he's relentless in making his case. My wife has occasionally, lovingly pointed out to me that I tend to make my case a little too long. It doesn't even have to be in a disagreement or argument or something. It doesn't have to be about anything important. But if I can think of four reasons of explanation for something, I will tell her all four. If I can think of a fifth, I will tack that on as well. If an, an illustration comes to mind, I'll share that. A historical precedent, sure. If a diagram pops in my head, I will get out a napkin and I will start to draw. And often my wife will lovingly put her hand on my hand and say, shh, okay, okay, I got it, got it. Got it, got it a long time ago, it's okay, we're good. Well, maybe James can relate to me. He has already been circling about over the same ground before this morning's text. And today we'll see him circle about all the more. Like a buzzard, tightening his circle, circling faster over the same ground. And then he'll land on his point with blunt precision. And he'll do it more than once. And he has to. Because it's not just his personality. It's not just his quirk. It may be, but that's not why he does it in his letter. In this letter, he is circling about because this is of utmost importance. It is about what is of eternal significance. He's dealing with heaven and hell. And the scary reality that some think that they're safe when they're not. 
Some of you in this room this morning, you have said for years that you have faith, that you're right with God, and there may be sufficient, there may not be sufficient evidence to think that that's true. James writes for you. Here is the second half of chapter two of James, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. I'm not sure James had in mind a courtroom scene when he first penned this. So you'll have to excuse me for perhaps taking some liberty here in my outline. But I think a courtroom scene will help us see some of James's intended structure to this passage. It's as if he has an opening statement in verse 14 put as a question. And then ends with a closing argument in verse 26. And in between, he puts before us, Five exhibits to argue his case. So first, an opening statement. We could title his opening statement, Saveless Faith. Because in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. As James will later say, there's a kind of faith that is of no good, verse 16, or is useless, verse 20, a kind of faith that is dead, verse 26. James's point is that true faith has works. True faith works. Faith works itself out. It demonstrates itself in the life of the one who believes. True faith has works. What are works? Well, James has actually been showing this over the last several weeks in what he's written before. Let's just remind ourselves as we work backwards. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Good works have to do with how we speak and act. Or it's about the royal law, he says, which we get from Jesus. To love your neighbor as yourself, chapter 2, verse 8. One example of that is what came before that in the beginning of chapter 2 that we should welcome and honor brothers and sisters and guests as well. We should welcome them without partiality because that's how God welcomes us. We should care for orphans and widows in their affliction, it says at the end of chapter 1. Good works can also be the restraint of bad works, in a sense. You can put this negatively, and James has been doing that. We need to restrain our tongue from evil speech. We need to put away filthiness and wickedness, chapter 1, verse 21. All of that is good work, and it is work. More generally, good works involve receiving God's word meekly, chapter 1, verse 21. We're to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Good works even relate to how we go through trials, and that's how James began this letter. 
chapter 1, verse 2 to 12, he talked about trials and how we're to view trials, how we're to pray for wisdom in trials, how we're to consider trials joy when we understand their eternal significance and from whom they come, a good God. These are all good works. And really, everything the New Testament tells us to do, that's under the umbrella of good works. Not doing whatever the New Testament tells us not to do, that's also part of being good and having work lived out in our lives. So do you have those? Do you see those? Are you pursuing those? And here we come to already part of the rub of James 2. It's about the vagueness of some of this. Here's part of the difficulty of James 2. On the one hand, everyone in this world has good works, right? Everyone in this world can say, there are some things I've done not because I've wanted to do them, but because I think I should. There are some things I didn't do, even though I kind of wanted to, but I knew it wasn't right. Everyone in the world can say that. And yet, on the other hand, no one has enough good works And James doesn't give us a grid here. He doesn't give us a chart here. He doesn't say, here are the kinds of good works, and here are how many, and here are how frequently they should be in in the year, and here's how long you can go without some good works. We want those kinds of questions, and James doesn't give them to us. So the risk is the possibility that everyone in this room this morning leaves this place thinking they failed James's test and their faith is fake. Or the other possibility that everyone in this room this morning leaves this place and thinks, I got some good works, I'm good, James says I'm real. And we know it can't be either of those. We know in this room there's a mix. So let's pray for the Spirit to reveal things personally to us and individually to us in a way that only the Holy Spirit can. Let's pray for that as we listen to what James addresses generally to the church. You might say, well, I'm here. That's a good work. Surely that's a good sign. I'm in church. Aren't you, Ryan, speaking to the choir? Well, Ryan... Well, listen to this. James writes to church goers. Church can't be the only work that's needed to test this stuff. We need to not be deceived. He's given us that warning three times already. And James wrote this book because some wander from the truth. They wander from the faith and prove that it was never real. And so persistent James, he's done with his with his opening statement, then he pulls out exhibit A, compassionless faith, we could label it. He says in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, what good is that? What good is it? He addresses or or paints the picture of brothers or sisters that are poor that are hurting, that are in need. Of course, he's not referring to biological brothers and sisters. He's reminding his readers that in Christ, we are part of a new family. Chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that it was of God's own will that he brought us forth, gave birth to us. Elsewhere in the Bible, adoption is the illustration that's used for how we're in God's family, not naturally but spiritually, and by his work and his pursuit, we can be adopted. And so now in this new family, we call each other brother and sister from time to time, and the Bible speaks in such terms because we're a new family, we're under God, we have him as father, and we have a bond with each other that is deep and spiritual. It's even deeper, according to Jesus, than DNA. So imagine seeing one of your brothers and sisters that you know from this church on the street, poorly clothed and hungry, missing meals, and going to that person and saying, 
Go in peace. Be warm. Be filled. In other words, I hope it goes well for you, but that's it. If that's what you say, then those are, those are well-wishing words. I hope it goes well for you. I hope this turns out better in the end. But they are empty words apart from action. Apart from action. If a brother or sister doesn't have clothes to stay warm, no fault of their own, before you think of categories of poverty in our culture, uh, remember that in first century times, James here is writing to persecuted Christians who had been spread out, fleeing because of persecution. We, we just saw last week, didn't we, in chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse six, rich non-Christians had been oppressing them and dragging them into court. Here they are hurting of no fault of their own. Poverty because they've been squeezed out of any trading guilds or buying or selling that goes on in the marketplace. And you say to your brother or sister, well, I wish you well. Good luck with that. First John deals with the same thing. First John 3, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. So compassionless faith is not true faith. Obviously, James isn't calling us to perfection on this score. Every true Christian has had times when they should have showed more compassion and gone into action with someone in need. James doesn't expect every Christian to meet every single need they could possibly see or imagine. And he isn't calling us to create a Christian communism where all goods are distributed equally. But if all you can think of right now are the qualifications and complications to James's words here, then you've gravely missed his point. If all you can think of is the ways in which James's test isn't neat or doesn't apply to that oversight of compassion and need being met, then I wonder if we might be condemned already. I have to ask myself, when I see a brother in need, is my first reaction to offer well-wishing words, perhaps a, I'll pray for you, and then move on. And then if the Holy Spirit reminds me of this and maybe starts to tug on me to do something about the need my brother is in, I sometimes start making up the excuses for not. I sometimes think, well, probably someone closer to them will meet those needs before me. I sometimes say things like, yeah, but we got to stay in budget this month. And budgets are good, you know that. But I need to ask myself how often my first reaction is genuine compassion and how often I'm actually moved to action. I know this. It's not enough to say that I'm in the family of God. It's not enough to say that I have faith. At some point, it has to get demonstrated. Compassionless, actionless faith is dead faith. James says, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But relentless James moves on to exhibit B. We could label it invisible faith. In the second half of verse 18, he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith is invisible, but only sort of. What is faith? You can't touch it. You can't take a picture of it. You can't see it in an x-ray. But faith shows itself. Faith works itself out, and that's inevitable. Faith is invisible, but it does show. A pregnant woman may say that she's pregnant 
And her family and friends, when that's announced, they'll have to take her word for it. And of course, we all do. It'd be a weird thing to doubt someone's birth announcement. But if six, seven, eight months go by and there is no showing, there's nothing showing that something's wrong. Either she has miscarried, as is often the case, or she was mistaken in the first place, which is not likely, or even less likely and weird would be if she lied about it. She was never pregnant in the first place. We know that those are the only options because growing babies eventually show. They're invisible to us in a sense before birth, but the evidence that they're there is eventually shown by the baby's growth. It's as if James is from Missouri, the show-me state. James has the guts, the gall, to say to us, show me. You say that you're a Christian, show me. And you can reply, well, I prayed a prayer once that someone led me in. They told me I was a Christian. I think it's settled. I walked an aisle once. I raised my hand in a service once and someone said, you, you're, you're a Christian now. I've signed my name to a decision card when I was a little kid. This is what I was hearing growing up. I struggled with assurance, rightly so, until about the age of 17, because I was in a church that really emphasized, pray this prayer, walk the aisle, make a decision. Faith wasn't cultured, it was just decision-ism. And when I would go forward occasionally, which, which means like twice a year at least, and say to someone up front, I don't think I'm a Christian. I, I don't think this is real. They would point to a date that I had written in my Bible, say, of course you're a Christian, Ryan. Pat me on my back, send me back to my seat. And that was that. Maybe you'd say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up hearing the gospel. My parents are Christians. Of course, I'm a Christian. I've never doubted it. Maybe you'd simply say, well, I feel like I am. I feel like my faith is real, and I feel like I have God's love. And that's not altogether wrong. That's actually one of the ways, according to the Bible, that we can have assurance. There's inner assurance as the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That's in Galatians 4 and Romans 8. But that's not James's test for us. James instead insists that it's possible to feel like you have faith and to say you have faith, but not have anything to show for it. Imagine that you and I meet for the first time. We start to get to know each other. And then somewhere in passing, I just mentioned that uh, I'm an NFL player. You're skeptical. <laughs> and so I pull out my wallet and I show you this card that says, member of the NFL. It looks all legit. It's got a since then, you know, since this date back a few years ago and good through 2016, 2017 season. You're still skeptical. And so I show you in my wallet, I've got pictures with a lot of the pros. We're friends. Look at us. We're on the field together. You're still skeptical. And so I bring you to my truck, and I've got a bag of football equipment in there. It's all legit stuff, top end. Stuff that's not even out yet. Of course, you're still skeptical, perhaps. And you say, well, then do something. Show me. Do a 40-yard dash. And so I line up, I run the 40 in about a minute flat. <laughs> you say, flex for me, show me your muscle. And it's pretty big, but it's not NFL big. <laughs> I don't want to downplay it too much. You point to my shirt, my mid-region here, you say, lift up your shirt, what is that? It's no six pack, it's a punch bowl. Now you're, you're really skeptical, right? Let me guess, you're a lineman in this NFL. That's your, you're the world's smallest, slowest, weakest lineman. 
Yeah, I'm not in the NFL. Despite what I say in a few things that I can show you, I don't do the things that those NFL guys do. The testing of that illustration isn't, isn't science exactly, but at some point it's just obvious, isn't it? Faith shows. It works. So again, Christian, I ask you, what would you say if someone dared ask you, show me? Perhaps you'd say what James's imaginary conversation partner would say. That's the beginning of verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, this is a tomato-tomato kind of guy. Many roads to heaven. Some people are faith people. Some people are works people. Some people are doctrine people. Some people are doers. Ease up, James. Well, James agrees that faith and works are not the same thing. They are distinguishable, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. But James sees faith and works as having a show-and-tell relationship, or maybe better, a tell-and-show relationship. A completely invisible faith, then, is no faith at all. Exhibit C the demon's faith. Demon's faith, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. God is one. That's one of the most foundational, confessional statements in the Bible. It's the beginning of the Shema that we find in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. James says it's good for you to believe that. He also says the, the demons believe it. And what's more is that it's not just about this one doctrinal point that he's talking about. He's using that really as an example of general orthodoxy, you could say. The technical term for that is metonym. A metonym is a, a bit for the whole, right? A part for the whole. So he's using this one doctrine as representative of all true doctrines, and so, just like the readers of James believe not just in this doctrine, but also in Jesus' death and resurrection and his divinity. In fact, they're probably as orthodox as anyone could be expected to be for the mid-first century A.D. James suspects that they might be tempted to lean on their orthodoxy like some of us in this room are doing right now. You can't lean on orthodoxy because even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have faith and they don't just believe that God is one, though they believe that. They believe a lot of other things too. They not only know the Bible, many of them had seen the stories of the Bible play out in living color in real time. In Mark 5, Demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God before anyone else does. How do they recognize him as the Son of God when he's cloaked in flesh? I don't know, but they do. In Mark 1, a demon called Jesus the Holy One of God and then asked Jesus if it was time for him to destroy them. They know their destruction's coming and who's going to destroy them? And so James doesn't pull it out of a hat when he says they not only believe, they shudder. The demons have enough sense to know who God is, what he's like, and to respond with shuddering. I wonder if your faith is that active. It's possible, apparently, to have less faith than demons, to believe that God is one, and some other things, perhaps, about the Bible, and be move to nothing. Orthodoxy is not necessarily proof of salvation and even shuddering before a holy God is not necessarily proof. Think of the parable of the four soils that Jesus taught about in Mark 4. Remember the first soil there, the seed goes into the ground or goes on top of the ground but the bird comes and takes it away and 
That represents those who just outright reject the gospel. But the second and third soil, the soil goes into, the seed goes into the ground and something springs up, but it doesn't last. It isn't real. It dies out. It proves to be dead, despite the positive response at first. It's only in that fourth soil that there's true salvation, where the gospel is heard and received, and it germinates and continues to bring forth life. Not all the same. Everyone will have maybe different amounts of fruit that this seed bears, but there's genuine fruit. It's real. Is it real for you? If the seed is in you and implanted by God, then it grows. Something grows. There's life there. It isn't enough to say, but I can tell you what the seed is. I can tell you its features. It's not enough to say, well, I once responded positively to the seed many years ago. It's not enough to say even, I think some years ago, I saw a leaf come up, maybe two. That was a long time ago. What about now? Is it still proving to be the living and lasting thing in your life? As verse 20 says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Again, the answer should be no. So exhibit D, Abraham's faith. The father of faith in the Bible, Abraham, he had a living faith, an active faith, and even a tested faith. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And verse 24 states it as boldly and bluntly as possible, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, now we're into the thick of it. Now there's no avoiding this thing that we maybe wondered at the first read-through uh, or maybe even in what we've studied so far. But when James comes to say, not faith alone, twice, and justified by works, twice, I hope the majority of us in this room wince or something, grimace, uh, question mark in the cloud above our, our heads? Let's hold off on this Abraham example until we understand what James means by these bold statements like not faith alone and justified by works because those seem contradictory at face value to what the apostle Paul said among others in the Bible, but Paul especially, because Paul in Romans says things like this, chapter 3, verse 28. One is justified by faith apart from works. Or in the next chapter, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, God counts righteousness apart from works. In Romans 4, Paul even goes on to use Abraham as an example of this free grace by faith alone. It sounds like Paul and James are saying contradictory things, but, but it's not the case. Paul was not later on trying to correct James. They're actually talking about slightly different things. You see, in Romans, the word works Works are those things in Romans that people try to do to earn God's favor. So Paul's concern in Romans is how we get to the gospel. And in James, works are those things that inevitably and necessarily flow out of the new birth. And James thinks that the new birth is a gift. He's already said it. Chapter 1, verse 18. It's of his own will that he brought us forth. That's a gift, according to James. Now he's concerned with what that looks like. And is it real? And how do you know? Works are the answer, or at least one of the tests, according to James. For Paul, that word justification 
means God declaring righteous what is actually not inherently righteous, but is even ungodly. And so that judicial declaration is a gift. It's grace. But in James, being justified means being proven. Faith is proven by works. So faith can be justified. James and Paul are actually using the same words in different ways. We can combine the two by saying we are justified through faith alone, but our justification is justified by our works. It is vindicated by our works. The way John Calvin famously put it is faith alone justifies, and yet the faith with, which justifies is never alone. It's never bare. It's never naked. It leads to works. Paul, keep in mind, after writing three chapters about God's free grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Romans 3 and 4 and 5, he turns the corner in chapter 6 and begins by asking, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Because it would seem like it based on how free and how it's just about faith and how it's not about works. Can we just keep on sinning then? He says, God forbid. How can we? How can we? In other words, the Christian can't continue in sin, at least not in the same way they used to. And then Paul spends the next three chapters explaining how that's so. How can we? We can't. The whole salvation package couldn't be put any clearer or more concise than Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In a sense, that's all that James means by his Abraham illustration. Abraham's faith was active. His faith was completed by his works. It led to works. How do we know that Abraham's faith was genuine? Well, just take a good look at that incredible act of faith in Genesis 22, or as it says in verse 21 here, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. That act of obedience was an act of faith. As Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, believing that God was able to even raise him from the dead. He so believed God, he knew God could solve the problem of a dead son who was also to be the heir, the seed of a multitude of people from all over the world. Kings were supposed to, kings were supposed to come from Isaac. God tested his faith, and God provided another way. In the process, Abraham's faith was proven to be true and real. His faith was counted as righteousness, but his faith was far from alone. It acted. It showed itself. And if you're tempted to think, well, well that's Father Abraham, He's called the friend of God here. So, of course, his faith was active and vibrant and bold and obedient. I don't meet the Abraham standard. Well, then James moves to exhibit E, another Old Testament figure who's quite a bit different from Abraham. Exhibit E is Rahab's faith, verse 25. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? That Gentile prostitute Rahab of Joshua chapter 2 had genuine faith in the God of Israel and she put her faith in that God. How do we know? 
Well, she also put her lot with God's people, not her own people. So when the Canaanites came looking for the Israelite spies, she hid the spies and put the Canaanites out on another direction uh, to, to lead them astray. She risked her neck for God's people. And if you look at Joshua 2 carefully, she even risked her neck for the advancement of God's glory and plan in this world. She knew he was up to something big and she wanted in faith to be on the right side of it. Doesn't matter that she had a rough past. Doesn't matter that she was a Gentile. Doesn't matter that she was a woman, which may have factored in in those days. She had a sinful past. But with God, there is forgiveness. Mercy is free for prostitutes and for every label of sinner that's out there. And when one trusts in this merciful God like this and calls on his covenant love as she did, transformation takes place. Faith shows itself. You can't help it. Martin Luther said this, Truly, if there is faith, the one justified cannot hold back. He proves himself, breaks out into good works, confesses and teaches this gospel before the people, and stakes his life on it. We could add, like Rahab did. Luther says, where works and love do not break forth, there faith is not right. The gospel does not yet take hold, and Christ is not yet rightly known. This is simply what Jesus taught. Luther got it from Jesus, as did Paul and James. Here's the good news for a Rahab. Here's the good news for Mary Magdalene's or tax collectors like Matthew. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a wide open welcome. Just come. Not come with something, not come if you're, except come if you're needy, weary, heavy laden, burdened by sin, and sore from working on it. But when you come to him, don't think there isn't a yoke. He's got a yoke. He's got a yoke for us, and it's for our safety. And it's easy. It's light. Rest, yoke, it's light. Oh, what a Savior we have. Last Sunday, those baptized all affirmed something as Pastor Ron asked them. He asked, do you confess that you've repented of your sins and are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? He asked, do you recognize that because he's purchased you with his own blood, you're his and you owe him your obedience and love and devotion now and forevermore? We say things like that because of James 2 and other parts of the Bible. So I ask you, Christian, whether it's your first week being a post-baptized Christian or many years later now? Are you still trusting alone in Christ for your salvation? And do you still recognize that you're his, that you owe him your love and devotion now and forever? Have you forgotten that? Was it ever really true of you? Rahab's faith was real. Now James's closing argument, we could title it Inseparable Faith. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's another illustration. Our spirits, that is our emotions, our wills, our inner man, and our bodies are distinguishable but inseparable. If we're alive... Body and soul are together. They're inseparable. But if body and spirit are separate, well, then guess what? You're dead. That's the only way it works. And so faith and works are distinguishable but inseparable. If we're alive, faith and works are in some ways inseparable. 
And if faith and works are separated in your life, if you have one and not the other, works without faith, faith without works, you're dead. That's what James says. When I was a kid, my mom would occasionally have to bring me along as she went furniture shopping. Seemed like we went furniture shopping a lot. I don't know why, perhaps she was looking for good deals. But furniture stores are dreadfully, dreadfully boring for young kids. The only fun thing I could find to do in a furniture store is to go up to those fake televisions they have that are you know, empty, and I would grab it and lift it up over my head and try to impress everyone around me. Of course, all the adults knew that it was fake. It's empty, it's light, they've done it before too. It's not that funny anymore, but it was the most fun you could have at a furniture store besides taking a nap. And by the way, if you're younger than me, keep in mind in those days, they weren't flat screens. Okay, I know you can pick up your flat screen over your head, but it was a bigger deal back then when there were tubes in the back of these TVs and it was real glass in the front, and so it was actually heavy to pick up a TV and hence, Seemingly impressive for a young man to pick up such a TV. Well, imagine how sad it would be to own a furniture store TV in your house, in your entertainment center. There it sits for others to see. Maybe they even compliment you on how large it is. It must have cost a lot of money. But there's nothing inside of it. They can't tell unless they ask you to turn it on. There's no power that goes into it. It doesn't work. What good is that? Do you want to be shown, oh foolish person, that a TV exterior, apart from its inner workings, is useless? And so examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Test yourself, Paul says. I don't think that's a one and done kind of test. It's something we're going to have to continue to return to in our Christian lives to make sure that it's real, to make sure that we weren't deceived before. Examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. So where do you stand with God this morning? Do you have faith of any kind? Everyone in this room has faith in something. Is it in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the fact that he died on the cross for your sins to remove your guilt? Have you called out to receive that? Have you told him that you believe? Have you received that mercy that comes only through his righteousness and his death upon the cross for you? If you believe that, it'll change you. It'll change the world around you, how you view things. It'll change your heart, your motives. Oh, not completely, even sometimes slowly. Sometimes we even go backwards. But on the whole, he's changing us. So if this morning you're here and you you suspect that your faith for many years now has been empty and counterfeit. There's good news for you. You can bring that sin to the cross as well. With all your other sins, you can bring the sins of religiosity and empty claims about him. Bring that sin and know that Jesus died for those kinds of sins too. Bring all your sins, come to him, perhaps for the first time, If you're not sure, talk to him about it. Talk to the Lord about your soul. He's the only one who really knows, and he's the only one who can do something about it. But don't for one minute think that James would encourage doubters to just work harder. James never suggests that we do works in order to have true faith. If you doubt your salvation this morning, I implore you, do not simply leave here resolved to try harder, to do more, to do better. 
It'd be like pretending that your furniture store TV is real because you've taped some of your drawings to it. James would have you feel your helplessness and cry out to him to believe for the first time that you need him more than you ever, ever thought. That if he doesn't wash you, you're dead. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You say, well, I don't know if I believe enough. Well, pray with the man in Mark 9. I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus marveled at that man's faith. He had enough faith to say, I believe, and you can help me all the way with my unbelief. You can help me all the way to mercy and salvation. Just look to the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss. In poor contempt on all my pride, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. It bids me come and die that I may find that I might truly live. If we believe that, we'll be changed by it. Let's pray. Father, we believe that there is nothing in us, anything we do at any point in this life, before or after our salvation, that makes us acceptable to you. Help us as Christians to do good works, not trusting in good works. Help us to behold the cross and know that we are only, always, forever accepted by you because of Christ in what he did. And may that so transform us, Lord, that we are eager to do good works. Not even eager to prove to ourselves that it's real. But Lord, eager to do good works. Because we're your sons and daughters. We're adopted and we're in the family business. We want to do what you do. We want to help those you help. We want to love those that you love. We want to walk in your ways. Help us, we pray. Again, may we always look to the cross as our only hope and as the supreme source of any change that will ever come in our lives and in this world. What a wonderful cross it is. Amen.